everything completely. And so this is her testimony that she gives, Cory Ten Boom. It says, thank you for the fleas, is the, is the beginning of it. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom tells of a time that she discovered that God was working even in the most horrific circumstances. Corrie and her sister Betsy had been imprisoned by the Nazis for hiding Jews behind the wall of their Holland home, and Nazi prison conditions were pretty unbearable. This is what she wrote. Barrack number eight was in a quarantine compound. Next to us, perhaps, perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers were, were located the punishment barracks. From there, all day and often into the night, came the sounds of hell itself. They were not sounds of anger, nor were they sounds of human emotion, but of a, a cruelty altogether detached. Blows landed in regular rhythm. Screams kept pacing. We would stand in our, our ten deep ranks with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them up against our ears so that the sounds would stop. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Yet, in the midst of the suffering, the women prisoners around Corey and Betsy found comfort in the little Bible studies that were held in their barracks. Corey writes that they gathered around the Bible like clusters of gnats around a blazing fire. The, the darker the night grew around us, the brighter and truer and the more beautiful the word of God burned within us. When they were moved to barrack 28, Corey was horrified by the fact that their reeking straw bed platforms swarmed with fleas. How could they live in such conditions? It was Bet Betsy who discovered God, God's answer to them. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstance. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now and thank God for every single thing in our new barrack. I stare at her and then around the dark, foul-aired room. They thank God for the fact that they are together. They thank God for the fact that they have a Bible. They even thank God for the, hor the horrible crowds of prisoners that, that more people would be able to hear God's word in their barrack. And then Betsy thanked God for the fleas. The fleas, that's just too much, Betsy. There's no way that even God can make us grateful for fleas. And then she replies back, give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has placed me at this time. And so we stood between the tiers of bunks and gave thanks for the fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. It turned out that Betsy was not wrong. The fleas were a, nuance, a nuisance, but a blessing after all. The women were able to hear Bible study in those barracks with a great deal of freedom. We were never bothered by our supervisors coming in and harassing us. We finally discovered that it was the fleas that were keeping our abusers away. Through those fleas, God had protected those women from harsh abuse and harassment through the night. Dozens of desperate women were free to hear the comforting hope-giving word of God. Through those fleas, God protected the women from such worse things and made sure that their deepest, tr deepest truest needs were met. Because what was their deepest, truest need? It was to know Christ. And God used these women... <laughs> in the midst of such horrific circumstances. And you know what's amazing is God was able to use them because their posture and their position was not one of this life is about my comfort. Do you know, in our American mindset, there's, there's so much with the, the reality, and it's so embedded, I think, in our fiber, as far as entitlement of what we are entitled to of what the life that we're entitled to. And it really is not biblical at all. If you look at the heroes of the faith, all of them endured and knew great suffering. There's not one of them that had kind of a lack 
lackluster life that was just they, they took in ease, that was without struggle. We find with every, every bi- biblical character that not only were they in stru- suffering, but there was a, a response to suffering that brought forth the purposes of God. First Thessalonians 5.18, um, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But we're going to turn to a very specific passage of scripture here, um, Luke 22.14-19. through 19 is where we'll begin if you want to turn your Bibles there. Luke 22, verse 14. Most of of us are very familiar with this passage of Scripture. Luke 22, 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until the, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God has come. And he took the cup and gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, and he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is the last supper that Jesus is having with his disciples. And as he's basically giving them the symbolism of what we know today as communion, the the body and the bread, he, he, he literally says to them, I'm about to suffer many things. He picks up the bread and he says, this is a symbol of my body that is broken for you. He, he breaks it and he gives thanks. In the midst of, can you imagine the pain and the agony of soul that Jesus knew? That obviously he was willing to fully embrace the will of the Father. He was committed to going to the cross. But we know that after this point, we, we see Garden of Gethsemane, that he's in great agony of soul. We see all of these circumstances play out. So even though he was committed to the will of God, it, it's not void of the place of emotional anguish, of the place that even physically what Jesus endured. But what do we find in this place where none of us could even, could you imagine, in the night before you betrayed, you take the bread and you give thanks. The giving of thanks in the midst of brokenness, the giving of thanks in the midst of sacrifice, the giving of thanks in the midst of betrayal. And that's what we find. Jesus right here gave thanks at like the darkest hour, the eve of what would be the the, the most difficult and trying time. But this word, I would encourage all of you, some of the thoughts I'm going to share later on today. um, There's, have you guys ever read the book, 1000 Gifts? Most of you are probably like, no, you know, it's funny is I think this was written um, the year my son, maybe my son was like a year old because we were at a call. My son was a baby, so he was napping a lot in the hotel room. And I'll never forget Teresa Engel knocks on my hotel door and she's like, you'll be spending a lot of time in your hotel room with an infant. Like I wasn't participating in any of like the call events. <laughs> she's like, you should read this. <laughs> and I remember looking at it because I'm not really into like girl books, like kind of like you know, you know those books. Like, it's all like a mountain of laundry, a mountain of dishes. And it's like poetic about like my struggle being a woman. I'm like, just give me the word. Okay. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I pick it up and at first I start and I'm like, oh, it's going to be a total girl book. Like this lady's just going to like, (laughs) I'm like, it's just going to be all about this lady's struggle being a mom and trying to, but I read it. And to be honest with you, it's far beyond a female struggle. This woman has had some of the most tragic circumstances that she's faced in her life, where she could legitimately justify being depressed and medicated. And instead, she found her way out, and she found her answer was in the place of gratitude. And it became the habitual response of her life is the habit of giving thanks. And it's a powerful book, so I encourage you to pick it up and read it. But in this book is where she really kind of highlights the Greek word for when Jesus gave thanks, which literally the Greek word is eucharistio. Eucharistio in the, in the Greek is the giving of thanks. It's, it's giving thanks, but what's beautiful is the word actually means grace, but it's grace that comes from joy. So 
Jesus isn't just saying, I'm willfully choosing to give thanks. That's not what he's saying in, in, in this original language. He's actually conveying the understanding of, I have joy. I'm finding joy in this place and the conveying of joy. And you know what we have to understand for all of us is the place of thanksgiving. Do you want, you want to know where it really comes from? It comes from a place of joy but that, because we've found our contentment in Christ. See, Jesus knew this world was not his home. Most of us, our lack of joy is very much related to the reality of our life upon this earth. We're, we're conflicted. We're frustrated. It's not quite working out the way that we had hoped. We don't kind of feel like we're getting the portion or the lot in life that we deserve. It's harder for me than it is for someone else. The timing isn't working out quite right. All the odds are always stacked against me. I always feel like I'm the, I mean, it really is. Our lack of joy has everything to do with I'm not getting what I'm entitled. Life is harder. Life is stinky. It's a struggle. You know what's that little saying? Everybody says the struggle is real. <laughs> I don't know. I understand fully what it means, but <laughs> I don't know if it applies to everything or exclusive things. You'll get it. I, there's, I, I have a disconnect in understanding <laughs> certain. <laughs> but it's all related to the issue of struggle, and we don't like it. We despise it, and we lose our joy when it doesn't go our way. I mean, if you think, really, really think about the places where you lose joy, it's because you're being inconvenienced by something or someone. I mean, some of you, it's as simple as being in traffic and someone isn't doing what you want. <laughs> Do it my way, my way, my time. Ugh. You're going to lose your joy over that? I mean, I know that sounds so simple, but it's really a picture of the greater reality. As people, the fact that we lose joy because we're not receiving what in our minds we feel like we are entitled to. Right? Because you want to know something? In the issue of suffering and even pain and difficulty, if we've really come to the place that we've lost our life in Christ, no, if we've really come to that, that place, all I want is to know you, so I want to know you through this. See, every circumstance when he is our great ambition and not the life we build and the life we want and the comfort I need and the safety I deserve, when it's really about him and his fame in the earth, we can look at any circumstance like Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. You know why? Because he was after the glory of his father. And you know what he was saying? He's saying, I will go to any end and I will go to any means. Just be glorified. I find joy in you being glorified. So you know what? Corey Ten Boone, he was glorified through her life. I mean, that does not fit into our Western theology. It's kind of like, well, that was the devil sent her to concentration camp. So it's so much easier, right, to blame it on the devil how do we rationalize that he is a good God that allows suffering in our lives? How do, how do we, but I want to tell you something. You better wrestle with that theology and come to a place of finding peace that his nature is good regardless of the circumstance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this to you. We all know that there's international things raging right now. If you don't come to a place of stability, that it's not about your life and your self-preservation. It's about the glory of his name in the nations of the earth. You're going to find yourself constantly spinning with anxiety and fear and desperate decisions. Because you want to know something? When it all comes down to it, it's not about how safe and secure and how happy you are. You know, one thing I've realized about my son is, so we have, you guys know that I'm a part of a missions organization based out of Colorado Springs, and some of our friends are in really dark, really bad, predominantly Muslim, and we're talking ISIS places, and they're there with their children, and we have one friend right now that's moving to Iran with his four, four children, and to be honest with you, when I sit with these people and I, th I think, oh my gosh, your kids, but you want to know what I've realized? And I'm not saying, I mean, Abram, just so you guys know, my kid sees himself as a missionary to Boston. Like, like that is, he's like, there's lost people. He wants to go out with John Cho and go preach in the Boston. <laughs> no, it's real. Like, <laughs> but you want to know something? Most of us, we, we, we would look at missionaries like that and we would think, putting your child in harm's way. Yeah, right, 
kind of parent are you? Do you want to know something? Those children are living with a, not only an understanding of the gospel, but they're living with an understanding of the power of Christ. And they're living actually not in self-preservation and fear, but they are seeing the reality of Christ demonstrated and displayed where they are. So what's my goal in life? To keep my kids safe so we can daff out at a video game? He's safe. He's safe. He's right there. He's going to live until he's at least 60, 70 years old. He's safe. I'm going to keep him right there in that seat. He's just going to use his little thumbs. He's going to do video games. I'm going to, I'm going to feed him all organic. It's going to be a safe life for that kid. No, honestly, is that my end goal? That my child is raised in this, in this cloister of safety? Mind you, I'm a very protective parent. I am. Not <laughs> I am. But when it comes to his heart, I would much rather his heart be alive in the, go- alive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize the injustice we do when we create children in environments and culture where it's all about your safety and your security, your self-preservation? We want you to be wealthy and wise and educated. We just want you to live the longest life possible instead of giving our children, and when I say our children, I mean you as sons and daughters, the understanding of it is not about my life. It is about the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So wherever you want to take me, wherever you want to bring me, however you want to use me, any circumstance I find myself in, I'm going to say, use it for your glory. Instead, we find ourselves in adverse circumstances and we're depressed and we're down and we're frustrated because it's all about me. It's all about my life, my security, my wealth. It's a huge, huge indication of where our values lie. When we lose our sense of joy. Because it's all based upon this temporal. It's all based upon all the belongings I can cram within a 2,400 square foot place. I mean, that's in essence what it is. Our houses are like all my junk. I'm going to get it all in there. Keep me safe. What if we had a complete paradigm shift? Like Corey Ten Boone, wherever I find myself, glorify your name through my life. Glorify your name through my life. If that becomes your great ambition, you will not fear suffering. You, you won't fear it because you know what? You're, you're going to be looking for, I want to see you in the midst of this. I want to see your character. I want to learn more. Do you want to know something? We had a terrible, terrible battle with limes last year with our son. It was a long, drawn-out process. It was heartbreaking because we thought he was through it and then he'd test positive. And, and more than that, you see a healthy kid really sick and always have headaches and can't walk. And we just, it was a painful season for us. But you want to know something? I changed, I was definitely praying for my son's healing. I'm not saying I wasn't praying for his healing, but I changed my position. It wasn't so much, I need my kid healthy. I need my kid healthy. My prayer for my son when I would lay with him every night, you know, he'd have fevers and sweating and I would lay with him and just say, God, all I care about is that my son knows you. And if you're going to teach him of yourself through this, teach my son to know know your ways. I, I want, my son's healed. He's healed now. I, I was praying for healing. But what is it when the end game becomes, no, I want my son comfortable. I don't want my son to struggle. I don't want my son to know sickness. I don't want my son to, no, no, no. I want my son to know you. So whatever circumstances in life are created, let him see a glimpse of who you are. Let him know you as healer. Let him know you as savior. And regardless of the circumstances or what ha- has to take place, let him behold you and know you more fully. You know, I, it's, I have a very different testimony than most people. I, like when I was in sixth grade, was like my rebellion that happened. Like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I want the faith of my parents type of thing. And um, so it like consisted of a mini skirt and I smoked a cigarette. <laughs> my heart wandered. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I actually tasted vodka, my first taste of alcohol, last taste of alcohol in my life. Um, but during that season, so sixth grade, seventh grade, you know, struggling. My heart's wandering. And when I say that, I'm sitting in a church, but my heart's not alive. I don't know Jesus. So through that period of time in my life, you know, I have great parents, but this woman befriended me at church. And I I needed that. Like, I really needed someone other than my mom. And so she kind of navigated my heart, and she didn't have any daughters, so I became like a daughter to her. She had a lot of pain in her life, but I really became like a daughter to her. 
So long story short, <laughs> she became like my best friend. And it's who really walked me through that rebellion. And um, I, in ninth grade, gave my heart to Jesus, like, for real, for keeps, and never turned back. So in ninth grade, I literally had just made this decision to follow Christ. And she ended up getting diagnosed with cancer. Um, and when she was diagnosed, you've got to remember, I'm like a really new believer. I'm like, just like kind of jumped on the Jesus train. So she got diagnosed with cancer and, um, they did, they operated, removed the cancer. She was cancer free. And then she got diagnosed a second time with cancer. And, um, when she was diagnosed the second time, she went in to have a procedure done. Long story short, her lungs all filled with blood. Um, she was sedated for three weeks. Long, long story. But in the midst of it, I can honestly tell you, I was so angry. She had, she had um, boys. She didn't have any girls, but she'd had, she had boys my age. And she had a husband that was her high school sweetheart that she had fo- found again after years of a, in an abusive relationship. Just all of these circumstances. And I can remember one day being in the hospital. It was at Beth Israel. And I said to God, I said, if you kill Linda, I will never serve you. Those are my words. Gosh, little ninth grader. <laughs> but I just saw so much suffering around this woman, and my, my, that was my view. It would be like him killing her. Like, how could you let this happen? Because I was also a part of a church that believes that God heals. We saw her healed once. You know, all of those things. So I kind of made my vow before God. If you kill Linda, I will never serve you. I can't serve a God like that. And long story short, one day we went into um, Beth Israel, and she passed away. And my mother knew that I had made that vow to God. And so you could see my mom was like, what? and I mean, I literally, as a ninth grader, went into the kind of grieving, like my body was just like convulsing in pain and agony. And the whole hospital, all of her children, you know, her, her boys were there, her stepchildren, everybody was there. And you could just hear, wait. it was just such a, long story short, I, I made my vow before God. I will never serve you if you kill her. I went home that day, and thank God for the grace of God, my parents didn't make me go to school like all week. I, no lie, I locked myself in my room for, it was about four days. I didn't eat. All I did was cry, but I also, in that place, I just let God meet me. Even though I said I would never serve him, I, I, wasn't, I knew coming out of that room, one way or the other, the rest of my life was determined. The rest of my life was going to be determined. So I'm in that room for several days. And to be honest with you, between pouring out, I think I swore a couple of times, you know, <laughs> you know, just pouring out the agony of my heart in that place. But you want to know what happened to me? In the midst of that pain, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that anger and confusion, because you're trying to reconcile like, okay, you're a God that heals, but you didn't heal this one. That's jerky. You know, like <laughs> you're going through all those things. Do you want to know what happened to me? I'm in ninth grade and I had like, in the midst of my suffering, like the clearest picture of Jesus. Like I could see Jesus so clearly. And to be honest with you, I moved over the course of those few, few days from a place of absolute anger to a place of absolute trust. And you know what happened was my vow went from, if you kill Linda, I will never serve you, to my vow became, I don't get life and I don't get suffering. But all I know is in the midst of it, you are good, you are kind, and I'm going to trust you all the days of my life. And do you want to know something? When my vow changed, there have been issues and struggles, and my father's had major heart issues. I can honestly say in the midst of when things are raging, when my son had limes, and, you know, they're telling us it's going to be chronic, and, you know, it's, it's kind of freaky when you sit in those things, and they're doing blood work, and they're like, oh, it attacks their eyes and their lungs and their heart, and, you know, they're telling you, and you're going, ah! But I can honestly tell you, my heart's response in the midst of prayer was continually, I trust you. I don't know the outcome. I don't. But I trust you. Do you know when we trust him? You know what that is? That's the place of security of no matter how bad it really gets. And that's not in theory. It's like it's really bad. It can, Corey Ten Boone, it was really bad. But do you want to know something? She trusted him. There was that place of he is trustworthy. And we can trust him. And in that place is actually where we can find joy and thanksgiving, even in hardship. Because you know what? The hardship no longer becomes about us. No longer about us. 
No longer about what's happening to me, what you're doing to me, uh, the injustice to me. It becomes about I trust you and I get to know you more fully through this. It's an invitation to know him. But it's also an invitation. I'm not saying he does it, but it says he turns all things around together for good. It's not him orchestrating those things, but you know what? When you invite him in, he can turn it around so that you have a testimony of experiencing him and seeing him in his hand in the midst of it. That's miraculous. Only God can do that. You know, it's, it's mind-blowing. We have several friends that at a young age, age have either been widowed or been the widower, but we have a friend that we've, I, I grew up with these people, but um, she literally just passed away in her sleep. How, how crazy is that? He wakes up and she's not breathing. They ran every test. It's true. Right? Nothing. They could find nothing on this woman. She had two small children. Our friend, we watched him walk through this. He's now remarried. But I can honestly tell you, through all of that agony, even at, the, at her funeral, it was the most mind-blowing like thing. Because, I mean, as much as he was in pain, he just kept saying, I don't understand it, but I trust him. And do you want to know he's remarried now? And we have several friends that, like, you know, lost friends to cancer or different things, and they're remarried. And when you sit and you talk to them, there's pain there, but they can rejoice in the midst of it that somehow God does turn things. It's, it's mysterious. It's supernatural. Somehow he uses the pain. Some, somehow in the midst of the pain, he shows himself, and, and you come to know him more fully. It's miraculous. It's, it's mind-blowing, really. So this is where Jesus, he, he declares and he gives thanks. This is the place of thanksgiving. So he had joy in the midst. Augustine says that without exception, all try their hardest to reach the same goal, and that is joy. So the supreme end that everyone is seeking is joy. But the struggle comes in because our life circumstances are so different that when we can find joy in him and not in circumstance, It'll, it'll never be centered around our experience or what's taking place around us. Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing, and I know how to live in abundance. This was Paul basically saying, I can find contentment in all circumstances of life. I want us to take us back just momentarily to um, the Garden of Eden. How many of you guys are familiar with the story in the Garden of Eden? Um, if you're here today and you've never really heard the gospel or the word of God, Eden is like where like the story goes down of Adam and Eve partake of the fruit. Um, actually, let's turn there really quickly because this right here is the issue of contentment. <laughs> this right here is whether we are content in what the hand of God brings us or we're seeking something different. The issue of finding gratitude in what his hand gives so this is where we find um, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more cunning. So back up. If any of you don't know the story, basically they have paradise. It's the Garden of Eden. And, and, and God says, all of this is yours. It's all yours. You get it all. I mean, that's extravagant. And there's one tree. Just one tree. He goes, just don't eat of that fruit. Just don't eat of that. So there's one thing that's kind of off limits. And wouldn't you know, here's the serpent's strategy to, like, focus on the one thing you can't have, the one thing you don't have. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every? So first he distorts it, almost like God's withholding every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. So here's Eve. She's holding to the word. She's holding to it. This is what God said. He said it. And then verse 4. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and they ate. 
So what do we find here? First, Eve is literally holding. We see this in verse 3. God is holding to what he said. It's just that simple. This right here, ha, if we stay here, God has said he is good and I trust him. I mean, that's so elementary. God has said, I'm just sticking to it. I I just want to say this to you. Ingratitude has everything to do with, I don't get it and I want to know why. I want answers. I'm frustrated you're not doing it my way. Gratitude and joy and thanksgiving has everything to do with, I don't get it. I don't understand why I can't touch touch the tree, but guess what? I don't got to get it. I don't have to get it. You said it, and so that is the very best. Let's stay simplistic. Honestly, it comes down to simplicity of kind of like, I have to understand it, and if you don't make sense to me, I'm going to start questioning you, God. I mean, that's what, isn't that what we find in Job? Job has all of this blessing, all of this prosperity. It's all taken away in the blink of an eye. What does Job say? Though you slay me, I will trust you. You know what it means? It means I don't get it. I am suffering, but all I do know is I'm going to cling to you. In my suffering, I am going to cling that you are good, and I will see your goodness in the land of the living. You may not understand the process. You may not understand the journey. You may not understand the pain and the agony. But in the place of suffering, when we trust him, that is our safety. And that's where we find joy. Because you know what? Job wouldn't curse God. So his wife basically, you know, is the one that's negative and critical and, you know, doing the whole thing. And what does Job say to her? He basically says, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to take the blessings from his hand? but not the sorrow also. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to receive whatever comes by the hand of God because it's him I love. It's him I love. See, this becomes the question of our lives. Is it him we love? Is it him we love? Or is it our life, our existence, our identity, our security that we're attached to and we're devoted to? And as long as it's going our way, and he's working in our favor, we'll be loyal. But when we don't understand his ways, when he becomes mysterious, can we still declare, I trust you. Though you slay me, I will trust you. What if sometimes it's the hardship in our life that allows us to know God in a way that we never could have known him before? Can I ask you a question? Is it worth it then? I mean, if it's through those places of struggle, I have, I have a friend that has had more struggle, and when I, I mean mind-blowing, because it's just not my reality, but I mean, we're talking horrific sexual abuse as a child, and you know what she'll say? She'll say, I know God did not cause it, but what I do know is he has used that for me to know him in such an intimate way. And so he, he ne- never caused that, but because I gave it into his hand, he's used it for my good. Is that crazy or what? He uses it for your good if you'll give it into his hand in trust. But oftentimes what we do is we do the opposite. We're angry because we don't get it. It doesn't fit in our theology. It doesn't fit in our Western mindset. So instead of saying, I trust you, with my past, I trust you with my future, what we do is we hold on to it instead. We hold on to it kind of like, you know what, I got to protect myself, take care of my own because you ain't doing a good job. <laughs> and you know what we do with then is we restrict the hand of God. We, we, instead of handing it to him and allowing him to make beautiful things out of our life, we determine that we're going to guard and protect and be the, the safe keeper of our lives. So we find in the garden, where, was, where did the transition actually come with Eve here? First, she's living in the simplicity of he said. He said, and I don't have to understand why. He said, and I'm clinging to the simplicity of his word. I'm sticking with that. And then we find that the serpent basically presents, like, the end result is, if you do it this way, and you know what she does? She begins to weigh, oh, if the end result is that. Hmm. Do you want to know what that is right there? That's humanism. It's, it's our way above his way. It's somehow we think we know better. 
we know the right timing, we know how we should get it, we know how it should be done. Honestly, and when, those, when that's our heart response in our life, you know what we're saying to God is I can do a better job than you. I know better. How come we can't come to a place, it's like Job declared, we can't, we can't come to a place of fully trusting that he sees the beginning from the end. He does. He sees the beginning from the end. And there can be something that he is orchestrating or doing or creating or there is reasons that he's doing that. And that's when Job declared, that's that passage of worship where he says, you're the one that put the stars in their place. You're the one that put the ocean and you told it how far it can go. You're the one that established the boundary lines of of earth and and land and sky. You are the one that the oceans obey your voice. You're the one that created the mountains. You are the one that created the universe and all of the seasons. They move in order to your wisdom and your voice. The place of awe and wonder that you know far more than I know. And you are worthy to be trusted. And this is the place of thanksgiving, of when we stop trying to understand and we stop trying to make God do it our way, and instead we yield to his ways and we trust him, that we can find joy in how and what he does. So humanism is simply defined as this. The chief end of life is the happiness of man. So if God is not fitting in to the chief end of my life to be happy, then we want to do it our way. How many of you guys, you guys are familiar with Romans 1? I'm just going to flip there really quickly. Romans chapter 1. This is one of the key passages of scripture that really kind of highlights what humanism is and the issue of lack of gratitude. Romans 1, uh, 19, because... What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. The issue of being thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. And the birds and the four-footed animals and the creeping things. Therefore God also, this is where it goes on to given over to sexual perversion. What do we find here, though? We find in essence that we're making him into the image of man. We're trying to fit him in, into our finite understanding of this little speck that we're living in, in, in light of eternity. <laughs> I mean, really it is. It's a speck in light of eternity. And somehow we're trying to fit the eternal God <laughs> in all of his ways into that. I'm going to read you guys just this little um, caption out of this book, A Thousand Gifts, that I told you about. And this kind of gives a heart's response in the question of how we respond to struggle and circumstance and if it's with thanksgiving. Um, so th- she's telling a story here about her brother-in-law. Um, says, my brother-in-law, he's just making time since farmer husband made a quick run to the hardware store. He's talking about soil temperature and weather forecasts. I lean up against the door frame. The dog lies down at my feet. John shrugs his shoulders, looks out across the wheat field. Farmers, farmers, we think we control so much. Do so much right to make a crop. And, and, and when you are farming, he turns his back towards me. You are faced with it every day. You control so little. Really, it's God who decides it all, not us. He slips his big Dutch hands into the, fray, the frayed pocket, smiles easily, and he says, it's all good. I nod, almost saying nothing about, uh, almost saying nothing to him, but just leaving that new water tank in the back shed for now instead of waiting any longer for farmer husband to show up. But I, I catch his eye, and I know I have to ask. Tentatively, eyes fixed on him, I venture back into that place that I rarely go. How do you know that, John? Deep down, how do you know that it really is all good? 
How do you know God is good? That you can say yes to whatever he gives. I know the story of this man standing in front of me. I am asking, and he knows my story as well. His eyes linger. I know he's remembering the story too. It was New Year's Day. He asks us to come, only if we want. I don't, I don't want to think why, but we know. Already, I search my husband's face. Today, he takes my hand and doesn't let go. Now, we slide into the truck, not when we drive, when we drive the back roads, not when we climb the empty stairwell to the hospital lit room, only by the dim light. John meets us at the door. He nods. His eyes smile brave. The singular tear that slips down his cheek carves something out for me. Tiff just noticed Dietrich had started breathing a bit heavier this afternoon. And yeah, when we brought him in, they said that his lungs had collapsed. It will, it will be just a matter of hours like it was in the end for our Austin. His firstborn Austin had died of the same genetic disease only 18 months prior. He was about to bury his second son in less than two years. I can't look into that sadness wearing a smile anymore. I look at the floor, polished tiles blurry and running. It had only been a year and six months before that. The, the peonies had been in full bloom. When we had stood in a, in a country cemetery, watching a cloud of balloons float up and into the clear blue over the pastures, all the bobbing, buoyant hopes of Austin floating away. Austin had hardly been four months old. I had been there on the muggy June afternoon. I had stood by the fan humming in their farm kitchen. The fan stir stirred a happy-faced balloon over, over Austin's placid, placid body. I remember the blue eyes of his mirror, the mirror in heaven. He, ne he never moved. His eyes never moved. I had carcasses. I had, sorry. I had caressed my, my nephew's bare little tummy. His chest had heaved for air and heaved less and then less and then less. How do you keep breathing when the lungs underneath your fingers are slowly atrophying? I had stumbled out, out their back steps, laid down on the grass. I had cried at the sky. It was, it was our wedding anniversary. I will always remember that date. And now New Year's Day again with John and Tiffany, but now it's their second son, Dietrich. He's only five months old. He was born to hope and prayers in the exact same terminal diagnosis that his brother Austin had. John hands me Kleenex, and I try to wipe away all of the gut-wrenching pain. He tries to, with words soft and steady. We're just blessed. Up until today, Dietrich had no pain. We have good memories of a happy Christmas. That's more than we had with Austin. All the tiles on the floor run fluid. My chest hurts. Tiffany got lots and lots of pictures together with him. We had five months with our boy. I shouldn't, but I do. I look up into his hardly tamed grief. I feel wild, his eyes shimmering tears. This dazed bewilderment in his stoic smile cuts me right through. I see his chin quiver. In that moment, I forget the rules of this Dutch family of reserved emotion. I grab him by the shoulders, and I look straight into his eyes brimming. And with this scratchy half-whisper, the, the ragged words I choke out with a wail, if it were up to me, if it were up to me, I'd write this story differently for you. I regret the words as soon as they leave me. Then seem so, they seem so unchristian and so unaccepting, so not God. I wish I could take them back, comb over their tangled madness, and dress them in their calm Sunday best. And there they are, released and naked, raw and, and real, stripped of all the, the theological cliché, my exposed, serenaded howl of the, the throne room. You know, John's voice breaks into my memory, and his gaze lingers, then turns around towards the waving wheat. Well, even with our boys, I don't know why all that happened, he shrugs again. But do I have to know? Do I have to know? Who knows? I don't mention it often, but sometimes I think of that story in the Old Testament. I can't remember what book, but you know, when God gave King Hezekiah 15 more years of life because he prayed for it, but if Hezekiah had died when God first intended Manasseh, who had, done, who had never been born, oh, sorry, Manasseh would have never been born. And what does the Bible say about Manasseh? 
something to the effect that Manasseh had led the Israelites to do even more evil than all of the heathen nations around Israel? Think of all the evil that would have been avoided if Hezekiah had died earlier, before Manasseh was born. I'm not saying anything either way about it. He pauses there saying, I'm not saying anything either way about it. And you know, the reason I, that's a lengthy story, but the reason I read it to you is the pain and the hardship that that man faced losing two newborn sons. But he was taking the posture of, I am not going to judge God in this. Do you guys know the story of Sarah and Abraham? I mean, we all know she was barren. She had a promise. Talk about pain. We all know the story of Ishmael. We, we know all of that. And you know what we find with that, though? Is we find in the midst of Sarah in Abraham's pain, the word of God says they judged him as faithful. That even in the midst of our pain, that if we judge him as faithful, it invites him in. It invites him into the place of suffering. And you know what happens there is then we have fellowship with him. And then somehow in all of his mysterious power, in his ability, he turns all things around together for good. You know, as we close out our service today, we're going to take communion. And we're going to take communion together. And I, I want us, you know, two things is I want us to think about communion in a completely different light. I want us to think about communion in the fact of that with the brokenness of his body, he was giving thanks in that dark hour. And that when we take communion, I want it for us to be a remembrance of that in the place of Christ's suffering, he broke the bread and he gave thanks. And I, I almost want us to make it a commitment before him that as a people, we will invite him into the place of suffering. That can we be like Abraham and Sarah, that we would judge him as faithful? I don't understand your delays. You know, and I love the heart response of this father. He said, I don't have to understand. What a place of worship that is to say to God, I don't have to understand because I trust you and I simply want to know you. What if in every one of our life circumstances, our great ambition was to know him more fully? Not in theory, but in reality, how are you showing yourself to me? How are you revealing yourself to me? How can I come to know you more fully? I'm going to read to you guys just one more passage of scripture here. It's actually, there's two, and the reason I'm going to read it is because there's two places in Matthew, back to back, just a couple chapters apart, that the same passage of scripture is quoted by Jesus. And it's just kind of ironic that he, he shares them um, in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark 8, 27, the same uh, passage of scripture is found in Matthew 16. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and the, and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and to be raised on the third day. So Jesus is telling him, I have to go suffer. And what does Peter say? He says, far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In verse 24, it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then we find in Matthew 10, 24, again, we find that Jesus is giving the same passage of scripture, the same understanding that those that are willing to lose their life for my sake will find it. But those that are seeking their life are going to lose it. It's that place that when we abandon our life to him, we find joy, joy. That was the root word of thanksgiving. We find joy beyond measure that can't be understood. And it's because we trust him with the outcome. You know what it is? When we're lacking joy, oftentimes it's because we're raging against the circumstance. We're raging against the portion God has given us. We're frustrated with the timing that God has chosen. And so instead of being in joy and in contentment, we're in frustration. But really the passage of scripture here 
in its entirety, it's the understanding that those that lose their life, they find it. It might not look the way that you had hoped or planned, but it's the surrendering and the yielding to his wisdom, and we find life there. And the question isn't about life on the external, it's life on the internal. That place of inward contentment, that place of inward joy. Because oftentimes we're all trying to create it as an external reality. And all the while we're perishing inwardly. But as we take communion today, I'm going to pray for us as a community that our perpetual heart response would truly be that we would be found in joy always. But because it's truly because our life is hidden in Christ. Because we can find joy in all things when he is our source, when he is our purpose, and he is our great ambition. God, we come before you today, Father, and as a nation, God, we recognize that as we celebrate Thanksgiving, oftentimes our Thanksgiving is surrounded by what we have and what we've acquired and what we've attained and our list of materialism. Or, Lord, even we are thankful for the safety and the health of our family. God, those are all great things to rejoice in. But, God, we say, Father, we want the thanksgiving that Jesus knew, that on the night before he was betrayed, in the greatest place of betrayal and struggle and pain, Lord, that he broke that bread as a symbol of his body and he gave thanks. God, we say we want to be people that even in the breaking we can give thanks. That even in the breaking, God, that we can find you and see you and experience you. God, we say we want to be people, Father, that truly lose our life in you, that we might find life in you, Jesus. God, we ask that as a community, God, that you would deliver us from chasing, Lord, the temporal of this life. While all the while, God, our inward man is perishing and yearning and seeking for true joy. God, I ask as a community of people, Father, that even in the book of Revelations, Lord, as it's, there's judgments being released upon the earth, but there's a faithful remnant that judge you as beautiful in all of your ways. You're beautiful in your judgments. God, we ask, Father, that we could see the beauty of Christ in his judgments, that the decisions that he makes and that which he executes, God, that we could have a heart that is trusting, that you are wise. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him. God, we ask, Father, that we would come to that place of rest and trust, that you are all-knowing and we are not. God, I ask, Lord, that you would deliver our community, Father, from, Lord, a humanistic lens of viewing the gospel. That somehow the supreme end is unto our happiness. And God, I ask, Lord, that instead our happiness would be in the glory and the fame of the name of Christ, shouted and proclaimed to the nations of the earth. That every place on the earth, incense would arise to your name, a pure offering to your name, and your name would be made great in the nations, God. Lord, let that be our joy and our portion. Let that be our inheritance and our great reward. That we truly lose our life in you, Father, and find true life in you. We love you, Jesus.